with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Good afternoon, everybody, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, helping you find your courage to reclaim that which has always, always been in you. Very excited to be with you here today and every other Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time. And uh, for those of you turning in, uh, tuning in, I should say, not, not turning in, that's a little too early for that. But um, for those of you who are tuning in for the very first time, there we go. I just wanted to let you know that each and every week, these broadcasts are dedicated to the integration of spirituality and our mental health. And I place this all within the context of our relationships, the relationships that we have with others and what we, um, how we interact with them the relationship that we have with ourselves in that self-talk that we have and our relationship with God or the divine. So how is your heart today? Here we are in the, the end of the first full week in December, and it's about two and a half weeks till uh, the Christmas time when kids will be off school. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's just an exciting time to wrap up the, the year. So I hope uh, your heart is doing well today, and I hope you are well. And I, I hope that if you even are struggling a little bit today, that you will be able to find the rest and the comfort and the peace that you need. I'm Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, just invite you to visit the website. It is www dot bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity that's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity and all of these broadcasts are now podcasted in case you want to go back and listen again uh, you can go back into the archives and listen to previous shows if you're not able to spend the whole hour with me uh, now um, one of the things that i like to share with um, this audience uh, each and every week, just to make sure we're on the same page, is that um, I have a very solid belief, and, and this is how I really came into reclaiming authenticity. I have a solid belief that uh, all of us come into the world already equipped and gifted and graced with everything we need in this life in terms of our giftedness, our skills, our talents, our strengths, character traits, so on and so forth, the very best parts of ourselves. And how we live out our giftedness, per se, is in and through various relationships. They can be personal relationships. They can be professional relationships. And this aspect is very important when considering who we are. Because although we may have similar gifts and skills and talents and strengths and character traits, no two people express these identically. In other words, each of us have a thisness about us that cannot be duplicated. Oh, you know, people can try and imitate how we do things, or we could try to imitate how uh, others do things, but nobody has the ability to duplicate us. 
because within us lies what the 12th century scholar John Dunn Scotus referred to as hachetas, a thisness or a uniqueness, if you will. But unfortunately, millions of people never have the chance to discover their uniqueness because we're often told to look in all the wrong places. We're told to look for that thisness in all the externals of life or in the accumulation of things or the accomplishments or the accolades. But this is not where our thisness, uniqueness, and hachetas is to be found. Instead, the full expression of who we are is to be found within at the soul level. And what, you know, you think about it, that we go along in life and we often receive our, our most severe physical, emotional, psychological, even spiritual wounds in and through relationships. And we often go through life and maybe due to some other unpleasant experiences, we may feel like we need to hide that uniqueness, that thisness about us. Or we may just push that thisness or that giftedness way down so that others cannot see it and maybe exploit it. Or perhaps maybe we were told that we would never amount to anything by whoever told us that growing up or school or, or whatever. Or, or, you know, what other, other voice we heard telling us that there's nothing special to us. And ironically, these relationships just might be within our own families where we run into these struggles. Or we might just, you know, these relationships just might also be found within our coworkers and friends. But, you know, whenever we transform, whenever we go through change, we also transform others by our presence. It's how we are with them. Because when transformation occurs on any level, it's going to show up in relationships. You know, but first, forgiveness and kindness and compassion begin with how we treat ourselves. Because let's say just you get up in the morning and uh, you're looking at yourself in the mirror and, um, you know, just ask yourself this question. Have I been compassionate with myself lately? Am I being compassionate with myself? Because when I can be compassionate with myself, I then can be compassionate with others. And when I'm forgiving of myself for whatever I said or done, we then can be more forgiving with others. And when I'm able to live in gratitude with myself, when I'm able to live in gratitude with others, then I discover how this really opens up my heart to see and live in gratitude with others. And am I truly able to know myself as a soul and live from my soul? And if I can answer yes to that, it really opens us up to understand the potential in others to see themselves as a soul. But first and foremost, transformation begins with us. And this really is what reclaiming authenticity is all about, Charlie Brown. Namaste, because I see myself as a soul of light. This allows me to greet your lighted soul 
of who you are. A little take on uh, namaste. You know, it just uh, literally, it means the, the light within me recognizes the light within you. But if we kind of turn that around a little bit, and it's like, because I see the light within myself, this allows me to see the light in you. Well, you know, <clears throat> throughout this time of the year, uh, many people struggle to find the beauty and the joy, often focusing on external sights and sounds of the season in order to lift them out of their depression, or maybe even to quiet their fears or anxieties. And yet, there is tremendous joy to be found during this time of the year. But I want to ask you to first look within and see your beauty as a soul. Hear your beauty as a soul and know your beauty as a soul. As my teacher is <clears throat> fond of saying to me, beauty is most often spoken of with reference to worldly relationships and objects. And he says, do not use this word beauty with regard to the physical features of a man or a woman or an expensive object that promotes your status in society. But he says, how beauty is perceived has always been a reflection of the mind's inner purity and goodness. However, as long as the soul is bound within, let's say, nature's cause and effect, the laws of cause and effect, that deepest essence of beauty, that is the soul, cannot be directly experienced. But, you know, many people find it very difficult, if not downright resistant, when it comes to truly discovering who they are as a soul. It's as if they consider discovering who I am as being too high of a cost to pay in terms of what they have to let go of. But when you think about it, in the end, when the body is in its transition, you have to let go of everything, everything that we thought we've accumulated in this life, degrees, homes, families, savings accounts, 401ks, even right down to those family secrets that were once promised to be taken to the grave. Everything. So whatever we know, we identify ourselves with that. We know ourselves as a soul. We're going to identify as a soul. <clears throat> well, the last broadcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about listening to your soul in silence. You know, the quieter that we are, the more, you know, we can hone in on and focus and listen to the soul and what it's saying to us and drowning out all of the distractions and, and the endless to-do lists and other thoughts that are added in, let's say, our monkey mind. To really quiet yourself and allow your soul's voice to speak without judging, without, you know, saying like, this is wrong or that's right, or I don't want to hear this right now, but just allow your soul's voice to speak. Well, this week, however, I'm talking about living from your soul. And more importantly, what changes when you understand yourself as a vast soul and you begin to live from your soul? You see, embracing this reality really changes things up for us. So let's ask, <clears throat> what changes? Everything. 
relationships change, relationships heal, and how we interact with one another changes because we don't see one another based on the externals anymore. And we don't focus on the problems, but rather we focus on how we can nurture one another as a soul. And quite often, down throughout the history of humanity, people have been defined as important or unimportant, essential or inessential, based on the externals. You know, that a person's worth was determined based solely upon the outside. You know, their looks, their hairstyles, their skin color, their bloodlines, and so on and so forth. In fact, down through history, there's always been a set of standards for the rich and the powerful and another standard for the poor and the vulnerable. And I'm not sharing anything new here. All you need to do, just pick, pick any decade, any decade, any century. You look hard enough and you're going to find this truth. It is a pattern. It's an unfortunate pattern, I should say that keeps getting played out over and over again because people fail to see one another and themselves as truly a soul first. And I've been thinking about this for a long time now, and I think the the time is now upon us when these so-called man-made boundaries, these limitations and these standards, well, they're starting to be shaken to their very core. Because more and more people are becoming aware of themselves as a soul, and they are hungering to live from their soul. And what is transforming is that generations, generations now and even generations that have yet to be born, they're going to be learning to see people for who they are, not from the limited externals of skin color or gender or age or culture or socioeconomic status but rather to see one another as souls. Because when you consider everything that's external and all the isms out there, like age-ism or gender-ism, these things just don't apply when you understand people as souls. That kind of language cannot go to that depth. But despite the fact that we have a long way to go here, we've been improving, but we still have a long way to go, There have been many movements of helping intergenerations reclaim who they rightfully are and empowering them to embrace themselves as eternal souls. Well, earlier in this week, I came across a story uh, about evidence that points to yet another mass grave that was discovered back in May of 2021. Uh, This one was found at the Kamloops Industrial School in Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada. And if you've been following me for some years now, you know that this is not the first time I've talked about such atrocities that have occurred within the residential schools in Canada and the Native American boarding schools here in the United States. And the mass graves found in Chum. County Galway in Ireland, and the Magdalen Laundries, and countless, countless others. And if you're unfamiliar with, you know, this history and uh, the other intergenerational traumas that are out there, I invite you to order my book, read my book, When Ancestors Weep, 
healing the soul from intergenerational trauma. When ancestors weep, healing the soul from intergenerational trauma. You should be able to find that on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or other booksellers. Okay, read that because I go into uh, just a lot of detail as you know these residential schools and the boarding schools and how people were treated based on externals. And there's one law for the rich and powerful. There's another law for the poor and vulnerable. And just how this gets played out against the unfairly unfairly justified uh, trauma that has been plagued upon the people of the, you know, based on their color and so forth. And I even go back and I point to the origins of exactly where did this all start and why is it still continuing? Well, the Kamloops Indian Residential School was part of the Canadian Indian Residential School system, as I said, and it's uh, located right there, Kamloops, British Columbia, and it was once the largest residential school in Canada, and I think its enrollment uh, peaked at around 500, somewhere back in the 1950s. And uh, it's been a year now, a year of grieving, shall we say, since the detection, as uh, I should say, the detection of as many as 215 suspected unmarked graves at the former Kamloops Indian Residential School. And a new phase uh, now is is probably underway, uh, but they know that they were talking about it, you know, a year later, which brings us right up to the present moment. Uh, this new phase begins in the journey of the Tukumlips Sequalanche, hope I'm saying that correctly, the First Nation, to now bring the missing children home. And where they found this mass grave uh, was in this old apple orchard where evidence of the graves was found by ground penetrating radar last May, you know, May of 2021. And it could be soon the site of an archaeological dig and the work to exhume remains. And this is according to uh, the, the chief, uh, uh, Roseanne Casimir. Well, last uh, May, Chief Casimir said uh, that a war graves expert was using ground-penetrating radar, found what are believed to be the remains of up to 250 people buried at an unmarked site at the former school. And since the remains of up to 250 people buried at an unmarked site at the former school were discovered last May, the detection of hundreds of more suspected graves, you know, connected to residential schools across Canada followed. And it was really just amidst of this year of reckoning over the legacy of residential schools for Indigenous people. So there's tremendous, tremendous heartbreak going on in the people of British Columbia and throughout all of Canada and throughout the United States, anybody who has any connection with the industrial schools or the uh, boarding schools and how the children were uh, treated and mistreated. And um, I was just reading over some of the uh, interview, people interviewed, and uh, there was one Kamloops school survivor who said in the past year, it was just an emotional journey that included reawakening his own trauma 
and uh, catharsis. And for some, it was really bringing closure because, well, perhaps now we know what happened to these children. But, you know, by 1907, there was a, a Dr. Peter Bryce. He was a medical inspector for the Department of Indian Affairs, and he, he toured these residential schools of Western Canada and British Columbia, and, and he wrote this scathing report on the criminal health conditions that he found. And uh, Dr. Bryce reported that the native children there are, were just being deliberately infected with diseases like tuberculosis, and they were left to die untreated as was a, a standard practice. And uh, he cited, probably on the more conservative side, but he cited an average death rate of 40% in the residential schools. And despite this subpar health conditions in the residential schools, there was also an underlying philosophy that promoted a more aggressive euthanasia of, let's say, the so-called savage communities of that day. Um, and it's just, again, heartbreaking that by 1830, okay, <clears throat> coming up on the mid-1800s, that Canadian Indians were beginning to be seen as a drain on the economy of the Crown of England. And so it was believed that these people had to become more productive through the means of, uh, let's say, evangelization or education and agriculture. And therefore, the residential schools were the perfect tools for assimilating this race. And the schools seemed harmless enough, but there's a huge difference between the schools and the educational systems they represented. And, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, according to a, a Frank Miller, and he published uh, the Merriam Report, uh, the problem of Indian administration. He, he published this report back in 1928. <clears throat> and I think it's, um, you can find it in the National Indian Law Library. You can Google it. You can read it now for yourself there too. He noted that the educational systems in general were driven by three goals or three learning outcomes that didn't quite line up with the, say, true-to-life experiences that were found in the residential schools. Well, the first goal was, we need to explain to the individual members of a society who they are, who their people are, and how to relate to other people and the physical world around them. Well, this didn't happen because the indigenous people were often told to forget about their past as a great people. Forget about your history. Just let that all go. The second outcome of these educational systems in general were to train youth in the skills that they needed to be successful and productive members in their societies and ultimately to the government. And the last goal or outcome of the educational system was to instruct students to become properly socialized members who will share in the collective values, provide for its needs, and defend its existence. Yeah, well, this didn't happen either because, again, the indigenous people, the indigenous children were stripped of their identity, punished for speaking their own language. They weren't allowed to wear their 
traditional clothes, and they were forbidden to hold to their sacred observances and their way of life. So finding this mass grave in Camp Loops was just another painful reminder of how people have been treated and how they were viewed, not as souls, but as just a people to be disposed of because they didn't fit a mold or it was convenient to get rid of them or whatever other excuse that was used. And, you know, as a result, uh, the majority of either Native American children or the um, indigenous uh, children of Canada were either forced to attend these boarding schools or industrial schools by the government, or their parents were tricked into sending them with the promise of improving their odds of survival. And adult children of residential schools often struggle and still struggle with internalized feelings of abandonment or feeling disenfranchised or oppressed, and they struggle with shame and racism still to this day. And the cause of such historical trauma that characterizes adult children of the residential boarding school uh, system is what uh, a Dr. Marianne Jacobs, uh, she's chair of the American Indian Studies at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. And Dr. Jacobs describes as being related to all of this as a genocide of the people that the historical trauma that the adult children of residential boarding schools is you know, akin to the genocide of the people. And she notes that where some major event is aimed at a particular group because of their status as an oppressed people, yeah, that's genocide. It could be a war, it could be cultural, such as when a people's language is banned and they are not allowed to speak it or print it. Yeah, that's genocide. And it could be the desecration of monuments, such as graveyards and other sacred sites. Any of those events that have to do with ignoring the humanity of a group and having that part of a social policy eliminated. Yeah, that's genocide. And you know, for uh, adult survivors of these traumatic events, uh, certainly avoiding thinking about and or talking about such topics is common because of just the feelings of being overwhelmed. And this is where trauma comes from. When I can no longer um, have my own inner strengths, my own inner resources to be able to cope, to be able to deal with this, and I am thoroughly overwhelmed, that's traumatic. But, you know, some people um, may even resorted to, you know, drinking alcohol or other substances as a way to numb their feelings and thoughts related to the trauma. Some people, as a means of coping, they took to self-harm, whether they burned themselves or they cut themselves or whatever, that released endorphins to either numb their feelings of trauma or maybe even creating a sense of feeling alive. But either way, they found a sense of relief because the emotional pain of the trauma of the boarding schools is just too much to bear. So in in the mental health world, 
these and other features and symptoms, you know, were defined as what would, had become to known as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And yet over time, the recent descriptions of PTSD actually failed to capture some of the more emerging human experiences. And there was a need to kind of widen the net, shall we say, even further to include personal captivity or psychological fragmentation or the loss of a sense of safety or trust and self-worth, as well as the tendency of people to be re-victimized. And all in all, a distinct complexity was starting to emerge in the field of trauma studies, which included a person's loss of a clear sense of self. In fact, this unique type of loss as a result of a traumatic event goes much deeper than simply how we and or others view ourselves. It also includes how a traumatic loss contributes to a sense of feeling disconnected from all relationships resulting in a loss of our core beliefs about who we are. And furthermore, when we lose a sense of who we are, we are more than likely going to seek out a sense of self-worth from others, and thus allowing them to define us according to their definitions and their expectations. But, you know, by expanding this definition of PTSD, you know, today's healthcare, mental health, pastoral professionals are now able to better understand how a prolonged exposure to trauma affects the psychological well-being of a people in their everyday lives. And I also, you know, assert that much of the intergenerational trauma out there can be traced back to a prolonged exposure to traumatic events, especially with the emphasis on the loss of a sense of self, which is so prominent in surviving generations. Well, I'd really love to hear what's on your heart about this subject. So again, if you want to call in, I invite you to call the number 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after this break. Uh, again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. And I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. Be back with you in one minute.
Okay, welcome back. I am Dr. James Hauk, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Well, earlier in the show, I was talking about a story I came across about evidence that points to a mass grave that was discovered back in May of 2021 at the Kamloops Industrial School in Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada. And it was at the old apple orchard behind the school where evidence of the graves was found by ground-penetrating radar last May and could soon be the site of an archaeological dig and work to exhume remains. And this is according to Chief Roseanne Casimir. And as a result of this and many other boarding school graves and mistreatment and contempt for indigenous people, many survivors and future generations struggle with what has now been coined a complex PTSD. And complex PTSD now has been described as the symptoms of a long-term trauma that were sustained during prolonged traumatic experiences where people have been typically held in a state of captivity whether they were held physically, emotionally, or both. And in these situations, people feel under the control of an offender, and they believe that they will never, ever be able to escape from danger. And such examples of complex traumatic situations include being held captive in a concentration camp or a prisoner of war camp. Uh, being part of a a prostitution or a child exploitation ring, or prolonged domestic violence and or prolonged physical, emotional, and sexual abuse in children. Well, to these above examples of complex PTSD, I just would also like to include exposure to residential boarding school living conditions that is defined as the residential school syndrome by Robertson and Chaverin. And residential school syndrome characterizes thousands of indigenous adult victims and survivors who attended government-established and religious-based residential schools as children. And although many survivors report symptoms that are similar to complex PTSD, such as like the depression, the anxiety, the addiction, the suicide inclinations, intrusive thoughts, the rage, and other mental illnesses, the cause of their trauma is unique because of the stripping away of one's identity. I think one of the questions that we all have to come to terms with are, you know, even though this happened long ago in a lot of people's lives, uh, what are some ways in which the treatment of residential school syndrome is still being carried out today regarding how people are viewed today? How do people see themselves? What are the things uh, that are, you know, galvanizing uh, how society views Uh, you know, survivors of uh, residential schools and industrial schools. How do we see others? Again, this harkens back to what I, I talked about at the very beginning. Do we see others as nothing more than just what our eyes tell us, you know, just based on the external externals? Or are we able to see something deeper, more beautiful in everybody we meet? 
that is the ability to see them as a soul. And again, it starts with us. We have to have that ability to be able to see ourselves as a soul. And what gets in the way of that? What keeps us from viewing ourselves as a soul? And what keeps us from seeing others as a soul? Well, ironically, this phenomenon has been the one aspect that history has always underestimated about the, hum the voice of the human soul. And, and again, another, <clears throat> you know, clearly evident aspect that just runs throughout history is that humanity has always attempted to silence people or silence societies and or nations through orchestrated killings, through murders, <clears throat> through genocide, starvations, forced assimilations, humiliations, degradations, and other defining, you know, often, often defining people as savages or primitive, backward, unworthy, unlovable, and therefore disposable. Now, no, nevertheless, this phenomenon is not true for everyone. And for the majority of people who experience trauma, they can emotionally and physically and psychologically process their pain. They can find their soul's voice, and they can certainly heal from their past. Yet even when the traumatic events result in physical deaths, the soul still can be heard. And this is because we are energy in the purest sense, and therefore our soul has a distinct voice of its own. Not even the death of the body can silence the soul, because if there's one prominent lesson that comes from the field of physics, besides gravity and inertia, is that energy can never be destroyed. It can only be transformed. And therein lies humanity's healing. This is how we heal thousands and thousands and thousands of children, adults, who are impacted by the residential schools or the industrial schools of Canada or any other kind of mistreatment to people just simply based on their external features. So how does all this relate to living from your soul? I think it all begins with understanding who and what you're not. So once upon a time, there was a man, a uh, nice little story here. Once upon a time, there was a man who lived hundreds of years ago. And uh, being a simple man, his occupation was that of a washer. And he was just referred to as the washerman. You know, it's just somebody who goes around and collects people's dirty laundry and he loads them on his donkey and then he takes them down to the river and he washes the laundry and then he lays them out, puts them on the large rocks to dry and, and then he folds the laundry and he returns it to his customers. Well, one day when he was collecting the laundry and getting ready to take it down to the river to wash them, he realized he had forgotten the rope to which he would tie the donkey to a tree so that it wouldn't run off while he was washing his laundry. 
And so he was just simply so beside himself because he was going to lose a whole day's wage if he had to go back home and get his rope. And he just didn't know what to do. And he was, as he was standing there and not knowing what to do, uh, another man walked by and uh, just saw what was going on. And um, he said, uh, sir, are you, are you okay? And the washerman explained the entire situation to this other man about forgetting the rope so he couldn't tie his donkey to the tree. Well, this other man just simply smiled and said, oh, sir, don't worry. Don't worry. I have an idea. I know that you have forgotten the rope, but I tell you what, just pretend to tie the donkey to this tree right here. Uh, What do you mean, just pretend? Yeah, just just pretend to go through the motions of tying your donkey to the tree, but make sure he sees you do this. Well, if you're right there with me, you know, it sounds as ridiculous, (laughs) just as can be. But as ridiculous as it sounded, the washerman did just that. He pretended to tie his donkey to the tree and making sure the donkey was watching him. Then he took his laundry down to the river and he began to wash it. And every now and then the washerman would look back at the tree just to see what the donkey was doing. And the donkey was still there eating grass and acting as if it had been tied to the tree all along. It was perfectly content. And when the washerman finished with his laundry for the day, he loaded up his donkey and he commanded the donkey to move. But the donkey did not move. It acted as if it had been tied to the tree all along. And now the washerman thought he was really in a bind because he couldn't get his donkey to move. And, you know, and and like, how am I going to return, you know, uh, the, the clothing or the articles that he just washed to the people so he can get paid? This is a terrible spot to be in. So he quickly runs and he finds the man who told him to pretend tying the donkey to the tree in the first place. Well, he found the man in the market and he explained the situation that now the donkey refused to move because it still thinks it's tied to the tree. And the man replied to the washerman that, again, sir, you don't need to worry. This is an easy solution. Just as you pretended to tie the donkey to the tree. Now, you need to pretend to untie the donkey from this tree. Only make sure the donkey watches you do this. So the washerman goes back to the donkey, and he starts to pretend that he's untying the donkey, and he made sure the donkey was watching him. Then with a stern voice, he commanded the donkey to move, and the donkey started to walk back home, And all the laundry was delivered, and this washerman got paid. Well, on the surface, we might think to ourselves that the donkey in this story was just stupid. You know, just plain stupid, being tricked into thinking it was tied, when actually it was not. Because when you think about it, all the washerman did was simply go through the motions of tying and untying his donkey, which actually worked. And my friends in India have often used this story. They've told me this story many times, but they've often used this story to demonstrate how the Vedanta scriptures 
say that this exemplifies just classic human behavior. They say that we think we are the body. We think that we are the mind. We think that we are the intellect. And all of these things need to be nurtured on a daily basis. Or is it really more our duty to provide the desire and the pampering of these things? You know, and and a person works day and night to meet these needs, to take care of the body, take care of the mind, take care of the intellect. Uh, because if he uh, thinks that if he doesn't nurture this body, that he's going to die. And so he has to put certain restrictions around himself. And, you know, like that donkey, you know, humanity thinks it's in servitude or some sort of bondage. In other words, humanity does not know that we're not the body. We're not the mind. We're not the intellect. We are independent. We are a soul. There are no restrictions on you. There are no bondages. And, and even if this body dies, the soul is eternal. We're not going to die. Because Vedanta tells humanity that the body and the soul are not one. They're different. And we're so limited in our understanding that we are bound by what we see and feel and hear and taste and touch that we think that, well, that's all there is. And we, like this donkey, end up believing the illusion that we are limited or simply restricted because we're told by another that we are. Who told you that you were tied to the tree? Well, you know, it's just somebody else, like, well, it was a pretend tie to the tree. You're not bound to the tree. Unfortunately, we take that on as our identity. And we act accordingly, believing that this is as good as it's going to get, because somebody else told us so. Somebody told us, well, that's simply who you are. You are limited. This is all you're ever going to be. This is all you can ever do. And folks, that is 150% straight up garbage. We are souls. First and foremost. We are eternal. We are limited, uh, you know, limitless. We are vast. And everything I mentioned earlier in the show about the isms out there, like ageism and genderism and racism and so forth, those things cannot even find a place in a debate of understanding ourselves as a soul. Because the soul does not have a race. The soul does not have an age. The soul does not have a skin color. The soul does not have a socioeconomic status. It just doesn't. The soul doesn't have a gender, and so on, and so on, and so on. I mean, I see this quite a bit. Uh, people are really struggling with, well, I guess this is all I can be because well, that's what people told me all my life. I see this quite a bit in counseling people who identify themselves with their problems or their illnesses. And they're not aware of being more than what they have become so far in life. So they often accept this distorted template that has been laid over top of their lives, so to speak. And as a result, people tend to beat themselves up for making the same mistakes 
over and over and over again. But you know, in, in this story, the donkey that's free all the time thinks that it's tied. And similarly, on a, a metaphysical level, we who are souls believe we are tied to the body. That our soul is captive and seems to be, you know, well, that that has to be that way. And at a physical level, we're we're kind of bound to an endless desire to acquire things such as beauty, spiritual experiences, knowledge, wealth, fame, success, as well as the enjoyment of those acquired objects, as well as the avoidance of negative things in our lives, such as bad relationships, financial problems, you name it. And as a result, we believe that we have to find the key to our prison. And so we go down that road of like, well, the key must be down there, so to speak, to where it's, this means we just need to make more money. Or we need to really, truly be free somehow, some way. Or, uh, you know, we can find our, our freedom in passion or true love or any other desire. But what if you fully realized in this moment you're already free? What if there is no rope, no tree? What if the illusion of being in a prison is an illusion? Now, I don't want to come across as one who minimizes another person's pain or problems and struggles, but how might we be empowered if we saw ourselves as solutions to our problems by removing that, those layers of conditioning, or let's say the imaginary ropes, that keep us tied to our problems? What keeps us bound to toxic relationships? What keeps us thinking that there's nothing more to us because we've been told this all along, all of our lives? Well, here's the irony in all of this. When we are truly able to see ourselves and embrace ourselves as souls, and ultimately, when we're able to realize ourselves as souls, we begin to see others as souls, and we are no longer willing to accept relating to people as anything less than them also being souls. How many times... Have we heard over and over and over again, do we hear and see people calling for an end to violence and crime and poverty and so on and so forth? And it's, it's interesting, you know, humanity has always struggled with these issues, but it has never looked for the answers in the right places. And all too often, the focus has been on the externals that has often caused many divisions in humanity since the beginning of measured time. And it's in these externals that have produced these isms in the world today. You know, sexism, racism, ageism, let's say classism, egoism, and so forth. But when we focus on the soul of a person as who they truly are, all of these isms fall away. They simply cannot follow the language of the soul because the soul is always found by looking inward. No more sexism, no more racism, no more ageism, no more egoisms. Isms do not have a voice 
in the matters of the soul. We're all beautiful souls made in the image of God, full of inherent value, dignity, and worth. Yet, many struggle to accept this truth because our attention is often diverted to focus solely on outward appearances and behaviors. Now, let's be honest, we all live with some degree of ignorance of our soul consciousness. We may get glimpses of it, but we often feel like I'm never going to be able to uh, attain the full extent because of all the physical, emotional, and psychological issues that cloud our vision of who we truly are. And yes, diseases and illnesses do afflict us in the body. And we do feel physical and emotional pain with so much intensity at times that we feel like we're not going to make it. We feel like they're going to break us in two. And many times our lungs may struggle to take a breath or hunger and diseases cause our stomach, intestines and bones and muscles to scream in agony. And these experiences might make us question whether or not we are the soul whom God has created. Are you sure? How do I know I'm a soul when everything seems real in the body? But yet, the illusion lies not in the suffering, pain, and agony we experience. But rather, the illusion lies in the fact that it's our perception that there is nothing more to us than an emotional, intellectual, and physical body. Indeed, the physical and emotional pain and suffering can temporarily drown out the cry of the soul. But our soul is never silenced. And furthermore, the truth is that the greatest strength of who we are as souls lies in our ability to transform and transcend our physical, emotional, and psychological limitations. And for as much as history has shown us the horrific crimes humanity does to itself, there are just as many stories of humanity rising above such tragedies to heal and reclaim that soul awareness. I'm Dr. James Hauk, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Join me in two weeks, uh, right before Christmas, as we continue these discussions of integrating our spirituality and our mental health. So in the meantime, everybody be safe out there, behave yourselves, and take care. Bye-bye. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to ReclaimingAuthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on BBS Radio TV.